0: All here, that's so exciting. Yay.
1: Well, we've been really enjoying a hearty chat on the other Zoom link that the rest of us were on. Oh, oh. that's
0: where you were. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> Naftali, Deepu, and I were just like, Oh, I wonder where everybody is. Please you guys use are this not link.
0: following directions. Well, <laughs> anyway, it was in Base Camp. Base Camp, Chris. <laughs> I
1: don't have time to go spelunking through Base Camp at 7 9 a.m. <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm Dr. Grace Pratt, the podcast editor. I'm behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And we're going to let the rest of our team introduce themselves. We have a special treat that everyone is here today, which is really exciting. And as we go around, as we always do, I'd love for you to answer our icebreaker question for this month, which is, what is something that... That has been inspiring you lately? Uh, I'm gonna go kind of clockwise from my view. We record on Zoom for a little behind the scenes tidbit. So that would be uh, Christine Borst.
1: I was afraid you were gonna say me first, actually. <laughs> I'm Dr. Christine Borst, adjunct professor with ASU and a slew of other things. Something that inspired me this month. So I recently made a shift to a more creative career, and with that means that. I can use my workday to inspire myself with whatever, by whatever means necessary. And I think the beauty of that is that I just have really slowed down a lot. And when I'm, you know, when I'm outside, I'm looking around, when people are posting things, I love the beauty that continues to happen when people are connecting right now. And even in all of the turmoil of the election coming up and all of the black lives matter when i meet and connect with people that really it just gives me the warm fuzzies all over um so yeah people
0: awesome thank you we have amber gordon
2: Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see you all. I love seeing all of your faces. I wish you guys could see all the lovely faces that I'm looking at right now. Um, my name is Amber Gordon. I'm joining from outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Loving the icebreaker question, and I have to say that lately, I've actually been embodying a lot more of the divine feminine energy in my life. So this podcast is really great topic for me right now, and just been doing a lot more dancing and um, mindfulness practices, a little bit more meditation, just softening things, because I've really been powering through a lot, especially with quarantine. So I've been very inspired just kind of to embrace a little bit more of the the seven in in my life lately, and that's been bringing in all sorts of awesome creativity. Um, So I love that you said that, Christine, because that's definitely a space I'm in as well.
0: Awesome. Well, Amber alluded to our topic for this month. We're going to be talking all about pregnancy and fertility, childbearing, and how that impacts uh, couples and families in the integrated care process. So, a little plug there, a little spoiler alert. Uh, We have Deepu George.
3: Hello. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. My name is Deepu George, and I currently live in the Rio Grande Valley, and I am uh, actually returning after a few episodes, right? Like, Because I haven't been around for the last couple of them. Happy to be here. The thing that's inspiring me uh, now, or in the last few days, I've had some time to listen and reflect on things. Um, I came across this podcast called To See Each Other. And it's a podcast by this group called People's Action. And they really formed after 2016 elections. And they do these things called deep conversations. So, this essentially going into rural America that's often written off as, uh, you know, they're too conservative and we don't need to really talk to them because they're gone voters kind of thing. But this really employs, like, to me, what it feels like a motivational interview kind of way to community organizing. And so they track these stories from Michigan and Iowa and all these rural communities, where they begin to talk and uh, connect with people on these different issues. And I just thought it was a very neat model for democracy. And I thought, man, BHCs have a lot of skills to do this, like at a large scale at a community level. Uh, So yeah, so I've been exploring that and really connecting with that. It's inspiring, especially for the time that we live in.
0: Absolutely, bridging those divides.
4: Uh, Neftali Serrano. Hi, I'm Neftali Serrano. Or uh, you know, I often b- begin presentations with or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. Um, and they are actually definitely both correct. Um, my name is a Jewish name, and you can say it in English. Uh, I'm sure there's a there's a Yiddish way of saying it as well. Um, I love my name. So. Uh, I am the CEO of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm happy to be here. Happy to see, uh, just like you said, Amber, it's so nice to see everybody today. This is a really special team. We enjoy each other. Uh, This is like one of the fun times of uh, the month for for me, certainly. Uh, What inspires me? So, uh, you know, these days, my head is like knee deep in conference planning stuff because we have our conference uh, October 7th through the 10th. Uh, virtually, uh, which is a different thing this year, and so what what has been actually inspiring me has just been um, all the super talented people. So I, I've I've sifted through all the sessions and I see all the names of people from all over the country. And in fact, we actually have some folks from outside of the country this year. Um, and it's just it just floors me the creativity and the passion. Uh, the breath of desire to make things better uh, for, for people, for, for uh, individuals, for families, for communities, for the healthcare system, for healthcare workers. And um, yeah, I just can't tell you what it's like to feel like, you, you know, to, to sense that energy And I think, uh, again, in in light of everything that's happening now, it's really hard to sense positive energy these days. There's a sense of foreboding almost in the air around politics, uh, obviously around the COVID pandemic, around the continued fight for social justice. And I just like, uh, I've really taken some inspiration from the wind of all these beautiful, talented individuals doing what God made them to do on this earth and and bringing positivity and light into the world to me that inspires me and and makes me feel less alone in the world and and feel like you know this is awesome you know and i'm so so cool that these people share their talents in these ways um so yeah that's what i've been kind of thinking about lately
0: that's awesome i think one of my favorite things about cfha is the depth and breadth of knowledge that it represents all of our um, you know, organization members and, you know, there's, I, there's experts in our field and uh, people who have written the books and you know developed these core central tenants who are accessible, but then also so such a diversity of other voices and so many other um, people who have so much wisdom and expertise that they share so graciously. so I can't wait to hear more. and um, you know I know in a minute about our news and notes you'll share some more with our listeners about how they can join us for our virtual conference. But first, Bridget Beachy.
5: Hi, I'm Bridget Beachy, I'm a clinical psychologist out here in Yakima, Washington, Director of Behavioral Health at Community Health of Central Washington. And uh, everything currently is on fire, uh, and that's pretty depressing, obviously. But um, obviously, on the other side of sometimes some really difficult things are some very inspiring things. So I guess what I've been inspired by is the fact that the entire Pacific Northwest is kind of burning to the ground, and yet the amount of, I guess, harm to, well, they've been able to stop and contain some of these fires to uh, reduce the amount of damage there is to uh, certain farms and animals and people. And I just think that that's extremely inspiring that although things can feel a certain way, and they are obviously very dangerous, there's been so many things developed to contain these gigantic raging fires. And so I think that's a testament to people really wanting to do the right thing and to uh, save, our, save our land and save our people and save, save our animals.
0: The resiliency and humanity of that is yep. definitely hopeful. Uh, I'll answer my own question in a very different direction than all of your inspiring ones, but I was listening to uh, the Office Ladies podcast this morning, which is uh, Angela Kinsey and Jenna Fisher, who uh, played Angela and Pam on The Office, and they were interviewing this guy, his name's Dave Rogers, and he edited the show for nine years, and they were talking about the environment at The Office and how there was so much cross-collaboration that's different from other shows that they've worked on where the actors talked to the editors and the writers were in like in the scenes and everyone was kind of communicating and working together and they were talking about how much creativity that inspired and how um, just the whole environment of the show was so different and such a unique experience and it made me think of what we're trying to do with integrated care and you know that silos don't only exist in healthcare uh, but that there's this sort of commonality across you know that different fields we would think you know, I would think the entertainment industry is so totally different than what we're trying to accomplish in healthcare but you know there's some some commonalities of collaboration and how we can learn from each other and grow and when we break down those barriers of communication and um, you know depend on and learn from each other's expertise how much magic that can create so that was inspiring to me this morning on my commute and, uh, well as everyone has already said it's so good to see all of our faces and um, before we jump into our main discussion I know that we do have some news and notes and especially about some more information about our virtual conference so Neftali, could you share a little more about that <music>
4: Sure, happy to do so. Yeah, so uh, October 7th through the 10th. Now, originally, we were supposed to be in Philadelphia. Uh, for those of you who, who knew about or know about our association, we usually have an in-person conference every year in the fall. And unfortunately, obviously, with COVID, that's not possible. And we quickly pivoted to this idea of a virtual conference. And it's really gotten us excited about thinking about how we can actually um Uh, reach a broad audience this year. We've been able to actually accept many more sessions this year than in years past, because uh, we don't, we're not limited by rooms, for example. Um, And then, and then just the opportunity put forth by all the, um, all the changes with COVID and the challenges related to the, the uh, political and social environment, Um, have really, I think, in a sense, crafted for us a really great experience. And so if you're passionate about uh, team-based care, if you're passionate about integrating behavioral health and medicine, if you're passionate about making a difference in the lives of families, uh, communities, if you're passionate about whole per- person care, if, if you like the idea of thinking about individuals um, and saying, you know, they're not just a... a biological individual, but there's an interaction here between their biology and their family context and their social context and their spiritual context. And um, there's a way in which that mental health professionals can uh, uh, play such a huge role on a team uh, to, to really uh, make change in a different way, a more impactful way than just uh, providers uh, working in their silos. Um, you know, that's what our conference is about. And uh, we've got a slew of great plenary experiences. So these are times when our whole community will get together. We're going to get together around COVID. We're going to get together around social justice issues and the Black Lives Matter movement. We're going to get together around health equity. Um, We're going to get together around uh, uh, the politics of the situation. Um, You know, our last plenary actually will be a really interesting send-off for us on the 10th where we're gonna have uh, some folks who actually, uh, a couple of them have their own podcast, a politics-based podcast, with a couple of uh, pundits uh, from the left and the right talking about health policy and, and what the implications of the election would mean for health policy. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, then please uh, sign up for our conference at integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com and I uh, promise you, you're gonna have a great experience. And then the cool thing is if you can't make particular sessions on particular days, because it is virtual, we are recording it. We're going to be putting up our recordings on our platform called CFHA learns, and you'll have access to that for up to a year following the conference. So integratedcareconference.com, be there, be square.
0: Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Um, Sorry, I have one more thing before we jump into our topic for the month. Um, a, A little bit of amusement, hopefully. So a friend of mine has her students in her class listen to episodes of our podcast and reflect on them as one of the assignments for their integrated care class. And she was grading them yesterday and she was texting me some of the names, our names, sort of, that were written into these written reflections. And so I thought I might just share with you some of the names that the students heard and wrote into their reflections. Um, There was Neftalia, Natoli, Grace Pratz, Bridget Ichi, Bridget Jean, DP George, Christina, and let's see, Nalia (laughs) Cerrone.
4: Oh, that's awesome.
0: So
1: we may need to enunciate better at the beginning of these podcast introductions, I think.
0: (laughs) I think that is the takeaway. And maybe to direct people even more to our, uh, there's beautiful pictures of us on the website (laughs) integratedcarenews.com.
3: I'm used to having my name mispronounced all the time. So I'm like, I'll take whatever comes my way. I'll just uh, sort of correct you in, in in the path of our conversation.
4: Yeah, there's a there's actually uh, a, Deepu, a little inside family uh, joke in my family, because I don't know how, but they my kids got wind of your name, at some point, and uh, and they're like, Dad, you have a named you you have a friend named Deepu? your friend's name is Deepu? and and I was like, you know, no, that's not the way you say it, and they just kept repeating it over and over and just to bother me because that's the way our family jokes, it makes uh, jokes about each other. So yeah, there's lots of naming naming issues here.
0: <laughs> well, let's transition now into our main topic. Um, so this is a passion area for me and I know for several people on our, on our team, thinking about um, pregnancy and perinatal health. And I, you know, when we think of pregnancy, We know that it's not just the simple, you know, nine months of pregnancy, but everything that leads up to conception, there's so much with infertility, um, you know, postnatal mood disorders are such a central thing. The cultural elements around pregnancy and birth, um, even trauma survivors and how they navigate that experience of pregnancy and birth. And so, I thought maybe we could just open up broadly and discuss, you know, what have been some of our the experiences represented by our team or that you've heard, you know worked on in your system of working around perinatal health for women and their families.
1: So the first thing that really comes to mind is when my husband and I are trying to have our first child and it took over a year, which I know is nothing in comparison to what a lot of people go through. But at the time I was working as a BHC and there was a patient who I had known well, um, a teenage patient, and she came in and she found out that day that she was pregnant. And so they had pulled me in as the BHC and we had a great relationship, but then there was also me as the you know, what, 29, 30 year old, who is like, how is this happening, right? So on, on multiple levels here, I had to be here for her and everything that she was going through. And then also as a woman who was trying to get pregnant, who couldn't grapple with all of those things and not have the support, I think, as a patient at my own OB to deal with that. And so I think that it's so Pregnancy is so multifaceted and complex, and it means so many different things to every single person. That it's a lot to have to balance with the patients that we work with.
4: That's really interesting, Christine. You said that about how you you were reflected on how you you were kind of wishing for that that support from from Eurobe, uh, and and it's. It's so true because, I mean, if you reflect on on visits for pregnancy, like I know having my own three kids and going on a lot of these visits with my wife, it didn't seem to be a lot of time to address the sort of feelings around what was happening here. And this is like such a huge, scary, uh, impactful life transition. Um, And the other thing that I've learned uh, over time is that every pregnancy is different. (laughs) So even if you're like a veteran parent, like, you know, the subsequent pregnancies don't mean that you have it all down perfectly and don't need any support or you need to talk through certain things or talk through different symptoms and things like that. Um, So it has always struck me that like women's health and perinatal health in particular, it's just such an opportunity to provide on the spot support for just the whole myriad of things that can, can happen. I, I think, Grace, the issue with the question I had when you asked it was like, man, where do you start? I mean, there's, there are like, wh- when, are, when are pregnancies ever well-timed, it feels like, right? I mean, there's like, well, we were just about to get divorced and then we got pregnant. Or, you know, there's some verbal or emotional abuse or I'm pregnant because of the sexual assault or I'm pregnant and everything's normal, but I feel horrible and I feel like I, you know, I've had suicidal thoughts for the first time in my life. You know, this is all these different variations that occur during pregnancy, and yet um, unfortunately standard care doesn't doesn't do a lot to sort of elicit those naturally um, in a lot of cases. Although it's gotten a little bit better with at least, you know, most patients will get an Edinburgh uh, screen at least at certain points in their pregnancy. But that, that's at least my my experience of it. it's like, boy, there's a huge opportunity here. And and yeah, I, I even even as the dad, as the 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 man in the thing, I felt like I probably could have talked to somebody.
1: And there's this phenomenon that I experienced with each of my three full term pregnancies that all of a sudden the mother gets the back seat for everything you know it's like well well the baby's healthy and so you should just be okay with that you know and then i feel like as a woman i'm like well of course am i a bad person for not wanting to like vomit all day every day but i'm also thankful i have a healthy baby you know so where's that balance between honoring what the woman what the person the patient is going through and but the baby's healthy, you know, and that's a really hard thing to untwist.
0: I think that's one of the big advantages to integrated care and to our approach as a BHC is that we are or, or even an integrated care team because there is kind of essential in that a recognition of the importance of a holistic view of health and the importance of seeing the patient and, you know, a, as a piece of a system and understanding that there are no medical problems versus mental health problems versus social problems. They're all intrinsically intertwined and really cannot be pulled apart. And for a a practitioner who's working by themselves, I think that can get kind of overwhelming. Like where then do I even start? But for a team, we can take the approach to recognizing that every, you know, like you said, every pregnancy is, individualized, but also every, you know, infertility experience is individualized and every family and the way that they navigate that and those cultural elements. And so we can look at those layers and tease them apart. And I I think one of the things we get really adept at doing in this model of, you know, integrated care is zeroing in on the thing that's going to be central to the patient's experience that's going to be important to them and incorporating them as a piece of our team and guiding us into what's important for focusing our attention.
5: Yeah, Grace, I couldn't possibly agree more. And uh, at CHCW, we started working with a lot of folks just automatically. The physicians started getting us for even if there wasn't any type of presenting concern, just pregnancy and said, okay, you know, I want to introduce you to our team member. So instead of going in and just doing a meet and greet and giving my card, what we do is a contextual interview right off the bat. So every single time it was, we're going to find out the living situation, the relationship status, family status, and it never ceases to amaze me how much rich information is in that interview to then guide what it is that we want to do. Sometimes it's barely doing anything. Sometimes it's just listening. Sometimes it's encouraging to do the 30 minute walk. And it could be something as simple as uh, we had a young couple. And I said, you know, sometimes when you, cause it was gonna be their first baby. And I said, sometimes, you know, the baby becomes the main focus and then the couple doesn't get as much time together. So maybe you guys can start going on walks cause they said that they like to go on walks. And they were like, oh my gosh, that is the greatest idea ever. I never even thought about it. And so sometimes things that we think are a little bit obvious, maybe to to 17 year olds, it might not be. And uh, sometimes it's a lot more in depth than that. And then so what happened from that is one of our physician colleagues essentially became uh, an advocate and said, we want standing orders for any person coming in uh, for their first OB visit, going to automatic referral to BHC. So we have that pathway going to this day and it is some of the most rich amazing experiences and it really helps for many many reasons uh, have the patient be an advocate in their own health and engaged in their own health it gives the medical team some really important contextual information and it also teaches the patient that mental health professional or BHC work isn't for when things get really bad it could be anytime at anything uh, and the severity level doesn't matter. it could just be a 20 minute talk or it could be something a little bit more in depth. And all of that is on the table, and we're here for that.
1: Love that yeah. so much, Bridget. Wow.
3: Yeah. I think one of the uh, promising things that happened in at uh, UTRGV is that our OBGYN department, like from the get-go, they're very curious about IBH and the work that we were doing in family medicine. And I gotta say OBGYN colleagues were so much more adept at like, uh, like embracing the PCBH model and the BHC much more quickly than my family medicine colleagues. I'm not throwing shade at them. I'm just saying it just happened a lot quicker there. Uh, and one of the things that we have an amazing BHC and um, we'll interview her and one of the uh, faculty members for the podcast and put it up as a special segment, but they've really embraced the model and we are trying to now figure out like so during their prenatal visits, there is standard BHC visit at different time points when they're in clinic. Uh, so they meet with them on the first visit and then multiple times throughout the visit. The thing that I've always thought about was we have nine months where most most of the patients will come to clinic multiple times, right? So it's like a captive audience. And the, the thing that I've always uh, thought about are two things. So one is The entry of a child, especially if it's their first birth, um, really changes the family system, whatever the family system turns out to be, right? Uh, Whether they're married, cohabiting, divorced, separated, et cetera, it sort of introduces a whole bunch of complexity. And even when you're in a sort of stable, supportive environment, introducing a new person, a child, a needy child into the mix can be stressful. So I can't imagine what it means for couples and um, others who are in, in a less stable or a more complicated situation to deal with that. So I want us to just address the family system health and the relationship health, like Bridget was saying, like, you know, what are you doing for each other? The other thing that I think about is if the mom had ACEs and pregnancy is likely to trigger some sense of memories and other things related to the ACEs. And that if unless addressed, I think it almost sort of becomes a silent note that will continue to keep playing into the pregnancy, into her behavioral and emotional patterns and she will sort of rely on to sort of respond to the child's needs and other things. So I also always uh, do think about the role that we can have in those nine months to begin to look into ACEs and probably give coping skills, get their partners involved in talking about these issues so that it can be a more open conversation, right? So you're sort of like releasing the pressure that we know is there, but for a lot of people, they're not really acknowledging that it may be there, right? So, And I think that entry point may do a lot to sort of curtail intergenerational trauma And uh, like the passing down of those rough experiences to sort of become the blueprint for the development of their family system or unit.
0: This is when I wish that our podcast was a video podcast so everyone can see how emphatically we're all nodding with what DP just said. Uh, Yeah, you know, so my kind of area of research interest is around pregnancy and trauma and how that impacts families. and. One of the reasons why pregnancy is so difficult for trauma survivors is because, you know, that, one of the, that core piece of trauma that's a lack of control and a lot of times lack of control over your body or your circumstances. And then we can conceptualize a lot of trauma survivors' reactions and, you know, ways that they navigate that as attempts to regain control. Pregnancy, and even for those who have difficulty conceiving, infertility – is a almost complete lack of control of your body. Um, you know, you for someone who's navigating infertility and um, you have this goal in mind that you want, and pieces aren't cooperating, and there's so many medical procedures involved in that. A lot of times, um, and then once someone achieves a pregnancy, frequently there can be losses. Losses are much more common than are discussed, I think, among our kind of cultural understanding or our general population. And so the way the family navigates that, but then also just the lack of control over their body and the way that it's developing. And so there's a lot of pieces that go into that that can be triggering of trauma. And just like you said, Deepu, it's such a great opportunity for us um, to intervene. Bridget put in our chat that uh, OB. has Uh, visits our family system providers playground, which is a great language to put there too, because we typically not only have the pregnant person, but also whoever's in their support system is involved and engaged in that care. And it is a really great opportunity to expand our system and expand our influence.
3: Yeah. And I think, Grace, the other thing that I think about during pregnancy is all the complications and all the challenges. And then when uh, you lose the pregnancy, uh, whether it's a miscarriage or other issues that come along the way. And that's another thing that people, um, I don't think medical systems are particularly uh, agile to respond to those issues or the nuances of those issues. I've had a lot of patients over the years where two things have been common. So they've had a miscarriage and it was never addressed after the event, meaning from a sort of like discuss it, check in with the person, what's going on kind of issue. And so it's sort of like the silent, again, one more silent thing that they're carrying with them. And I've had mothers who whose children are now like 12, 13, had really bad um, postpartum depression, never addressed or never talked about it. And so right now when they're uh, beginning to experience these different symptoms based on different contextual factors, they're really, their memories are like t- 12 years ago of what was happening in those like those 8 to 12 to 14 months after their pregnancy, right? And so there are a couple of things that I, uh, there's a website called grieveoutloud.org. Um, it's a support group Um, It's a a support website with all kinds of resources for mothers who are grieving and really connects people to stories of women who have gone through this and they sort of guide them through that. And I found that very helpful uh, place for patients to go to. Um, They have videos and other resources that they um, have there. And so that's the other part I feel like um, that doesn't get a lot of light in the whole pregnancy experience.
5: And I think that as BHCs, that's something that we can get more and more onto the radar of our systems, not necessarily putting it just on the provider or just on the nurse, but just kind of like, hey, did you know this? And and raising to light the level of complexity and bringing into that these complex factors are definitely something that is worthy of that clinical time. And so even if the BHC in the system isn't able to say, meet with every single patient and for whatever reason, that's okay because now it's on the minds of the healthcare system a lot more. So I think that's another way in which, I think alluding to what uh, Grace was saying with the podcast she was listening to where the actors and writers are interplaying, it creates uh, an environment where just everybody is better off and better equipped to handle and manage what patients are coming in
4: for. That's right. And I, I just want to kind of highlight something that cuts across all these conversations that is um, unique to, I think, women's health in this area is that um, the best way to do good integration is to make it routine. So um, having, especially especially for um, pregnancy care, uh, it's based on so many routines. In fact, that's, that's both a strength and a weakness. So we're, we're pointing out both sides of it, right? So the, the, sh- the weakness of it is that there's so many routines that sometimes the visit can become just about the routine. Um, you know, this is what you do at, uh, you know, the 20-week visit, this is what you do, you know. And so it becomes that checklist thing. So that, that can be a weakness because the person can get lost in that. But if you're able to, as a team, integrate certain uh, features, like you talked about, Bridget, you know, at first visit, you always have the BHC come in. Um, And so what a lot of good clinics do is they have a series of those visits where they say, okay, at the um, 36 week visit, we're gonna have the BHC come in. Um, If we have a centering pregnancy class, uh, we have the BHC come in on the fourth week or whatever it is, and they do a presentation on uh, mood issues and and coping with them and and the like. We have uh, screening at certain intervals during the pregnancy and after the pregnancy. Uh, when the baby comes in with mom after birth, we make sure they meet with the whole team, uh, et cetera. And uh, the, the byproduct of that is obviously you're gonna catch a lot more of these issues. But as you said, Bridget, what's really important about this is not just that we're like um, pushing us all off or chirping it to the behavioral health person, but that the entire team starts to think differently about caring for their patients so that every person becomes almost like a screening mechanism you know, they pick up on what's happening with their patients and are then able to, you know, even the providers hopefully get better at, at being present with their patients, at attending, maybe shifting the focus of a visit when they realize, hey, this is actually something else here that's more important than the routine thing that I need to get done or checked off today. Um, and and that, that really is a goal. It's not just to, like, turf people off to behavioral health. So routine, just think that. If you're thinking about women's health, Think routine, think protocols, because that's how uh, women's self operates.
5: And the one thing I'll add, and then I'll, I won't monopolize anymore, is that some of our new BHCs, because we have our trainees every year, they're just, understandably, they're like, well, oh my gosh, how do I do an OB visit? And we know more than what we think we do. Uh, trust your training. Trust what you know about families and relationships and communication and behavioral plans, whether it's from CBT to Carl Rogers, whatever you were trained in, you have something to offer. And so we really, uh, we do provide, you know, some training behind the scenes to our our interns, but even if they didn't have access to that, if they know how to do a contextual interview, which we will teach them to do, you can do it because the patient is gonna guide, they're gonna tell you what's up. So for you BHCs out there, Don't think that you need a whole nother level of like, well, I don't know anything about pregnancy. How could I possibly help somebody? I'm not, of course, advocating for somebody to operate outside of their competency, but I'm just saying that within that context, there is something you can get done based on what your training has been.
0: Yes. And here's the thing. Pregnant people are still people with everything else going on in their life as well. And so there is substance abuse in pregnancy there is, uh, you know, mood disorders in pregnancy, there are social determinant, like barriers to health in pregnancy, there's health behavior goals people want to set, all of these things that we do, and I tell my interns just what you said, Bridget, you know more than you think you do, and we have, coming back to what I said earlier, we have an opportunity as teams that are focused on whole person, on whole family care, to partner with the patient, to center in on the piece that it's important to them, um, and to, to work around that within our team.
4: You know, one of cat- the uh that a lot of folks might be thinking about there are just uh, um, patients with severe and persistent mental illness in pregnancy. Um, that's been one I've had a lot of experience with, and, and it's also very gratifying to work in, so that you have maybe a patient with bipolar disorder has been historically on, on a bunch of meds. And then, um, you know, then we need to work with all the complexities of their, their life, but also the, the pharmacology of the situation and, and make important decisions together with uh, the patient about what's gonna be the safest way to proceed during this pregnancy. And those can be really rich interactions between myself and the consulting psychiatrist and the primary care provider and the patient um, but those are really rewarding because you really have this sense of like working together. Because a lot of times the patients themselves they're, they're really invested. They're, they're moms already. They they want to um, protect their babies and and they want to do the best thing for their own health as well. Um, and so I've really enjoyed coming alongside those those kind of really complicated situations and then have that baby be born and and he, have moms who are. are are feeling like they can tackle something they thought was impossible before. You know, whether they got off their meds, stayed on some of their meds um, or whatever, um, it's really cool.
1: And I think in the spirit of routine and this focus on functioning, there's a lot of opportunity to connect and empower pregnant women, Um, especially think about even if you haven't, I mean, also I feel like women are socialized to have body issues issue issues anyways, but, you know, the amount of strangers who just think they now have, it's a free pass to comment on everything you're by, come up and touch you, and I think that is an area, too, that we could really be proactive about and and help, um, yeah, yeah, like Bridget just said, strength-based, yes, come with a strength-based approach and really empower women to set those boundaries and to say, it's okay, you don't have to sit and let people You know come up and touch you and and because that can be really triggering for a lot of um people with past trauma or body you know body dysmorphic issues or just ew don't come up and touch me you know
4: yeah i don't think anybody's ever come up and touched my belly
1: right it's weird
0: so many comments about your body It's weird
2: and just to also go off of what was saying i know i work a lot with people who have chronic illness Um, And so just even having the conversation with them about what their expectations or assumptions were about fertility, about pregnancy, about bringing a baby into the picture, what they thought it was going to be like versus what it is actually like to really get interested about their narrative coming into the process. Um, Because even people who have chronic health issues, their whole life things have been really difficult. But then for a lot of them, they thought having a baby was going to be easier. It was going to be this magical experience where like they just decide they want a kid and then bam, you have a kid. Um, And they really struggle with feeling even more broken on top of, you know, the chronic health struggles that they've already been dealing with because of fertility issues or, you know, even a previously otherwise healthy person experiences health struggles for the first time in their life during pregnancy and like what that's actually like for them. So I think that there's a lot of narrative here in terms of like what we see in the media, what we see in movies, what, you know, we were told from our friends um, and I'm speaking obviously as a, as a woman in this context in, in terms of like what we're bringing into it because there's so much stuff there to unpack. And I really do feel like that influences how people are able to kind of construct their own individual narrative about the process and about the experience.
4: Yeah, Amber, that's a great point. Because that that chronic illness piece in particular, um, there there is a lot of shame that can happen when when you have infertility and you have a chronic illness. Because um, a lot of times women will feel like it's their fault. Um, that speaks to that broken piece that you're pointing out, Amber. It's like like oh well, I've got this chronic illness that I deal with, and I can't get pregnant, and I'm broken, and it's it becomes kind of a personalized shame issue that they carry that um, actually can interfere with any efforts to kind of remedy the fertility issues um, and, and uh, obviously cause problems in couples uh, that I've had to work with um, oftentimes. And, and again, a lot of these things operate in the background um, and so they may not even come out in the medical visit Uh, The medical visit might just be the content. might just be, well, we've got these, you know, we've done these analyses and it looks like this is going fine, you know, and you should be able to be pregnant, but, you know, we'll just give it some more time, you know, and and yet there's no discussion of this underlying um, sort of component. And just to double back on what Bridget said before um, and uh, and what Grace reiterated, uh, for those new BHCs out there, um, when you do see a patient with with a with a complex array of issues, like they have a chronic illness and they have infertility, um, like don't try not to get overwhelmed with feeling like you need to be a specialist and understand each of those components. Usually, it just takes a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of research. Sometimes, just sidling up to the to the physician uh, providing care and just saying, "Hey, can you tell me a little bit about what COPD is?" and how it works. Um, can you tell me a little bit about lupus, right? Um, can you tell me a little bit about rheumatoid arthritis? And, and you just need to know a little bit enough about what treatment looks like and what, uh, what, what the condition is like for patients um, and, and, and pick up that knowledge. But most of what you need to do is really just uh, focus on the individual and focus on their context, as, um, as Bridget reminds us so often, and be as helpful as possible in that moment to the to the patient and to the team around you. Those other little details can sometimes distract you from being helpful just because you think you have to be an expert in those issues, um, but you don't really have to be an expert. You just have to know enough about the patient's experience of those issues in order to be able to intervene with those. So just don't get distracted by those uh, labels. Although for, I do encourage curiosity about it.
5: And for the love of goodness, medical providers out there, nurses and BHCs, anybody, do not make assumptions about who that person is in the room with them. Always just ask, just ask, find out, do not assume anything. Uh, and it's in the patient center communication observation form and lots of different things that we're trying to teach to our physician residents, uh, but always finding the relationship and not making a guess at that.
4: Yeah. yeah, even on diagnosis, this is, a, this is a thing that I was kind of shocked at when I first started working in primary care you know, 20 years ago. Um, there's a lot of diagnoses. You can't assume who the patient is based on the diagnosis because even the medical diagnoses are very, very broad. Uh, you know, so I, I remember having some early conversations about low back pain, right? And I thought, I thought going into primary care, like, people know exactly what low back pain is. Low back pain is a like sort of generic description of things that are just, you know, like it can mean a bazillion different things, you know. Um, even the experience of rheumatoid arthritis—it's not the same for every single person with the arthritis. I mean, it's really, really different. Can have many, many different kinds of symptoms. So, um, you know, just going in with that sort of approach is is helpful to kind of put all that behind it. And say, I don't need to be a specialist in every single area. I just need to be a specialist in people.
0: One of the things this conversation is reminding me of is the importance of health beliefs. And when we're trying to make sense of patients' behavior around something, thinking about, you know, what are what are the beliefs central to them? What do they think is the cause for this? What do they think is the cure? What concerns them about it? And that can veer into spiritual beliefs. Sometimes it does, especially, you know, when we're talking about infertility and pregnancy, there's so many spiritual and cultural beliefs. When someone is struggling, um, you know, with conceiving, a lot of times there's kind of a spiritual questioning or reckoning of existential what is the meaning of this? How do I make understanding of this experience? Um, but if we can help as the BHCs to elicit some of those health beliefs and to understand the patient's perspective. That goes back to, to what you guys are saying. You, you don't have to be, you know, a content expert on the specific, you know, problems on the patient's problem list, but we need to be process experts. We need to be, you know, the experts in facilitating these conversations and eliciting the important pieces for our patients
4: and for our or, team. In other words, you don't need to have gone through a pregnancy, to be helpful.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
4: Although I would say be, be humble if you are a male going into that experience and avoid saying things that are, uh, unhelpful. We we as males, sometimes even professionals tend to say things unhelpfully like, yeah, one time I, I experienced pain. Um, and then, you know, if you make that comparison to the pain of childbirth, Going down the wrong, wrong road
3: there. You have lost the audience at that point.
1: (laughs) If you guys only knew how often that happens, oh
0: my. You know, one thing is just to avoid making assumptions in general. um so you know you said we can't assume who the person is in the room we can't assume the context around the pregnancy and whether it's a happy thing for the person and the family even if you know it may seem so clear to us oh wow you've had so much infertility and now you're pregnant congratulations you got what you always wanted that's not always how that goes and there's just so much to unpack and to approach with a spirit of, I think, um, curiosity, like you said, and also just tentativeness and reading the room and using our patients' cues and those nonverbal pieces of their communication. Any kind of last tips or thoughts that we might wanna share as we're wrapping up this conversation and then we're gonna move into that special segment.
3: I think uh, one of the things, oh, Um... go ahead, Amber.
2: Oh, no, I was just gonna say that you know I think being able to also, like, allow space for the pregnant person or the person struggling with infertility to really advocate for themselves. I think Bridget put in our chat, you know, about coming from a strength-based approach, and, like, I feel like that's really, really, really important, especially considering the fact that there is, so much that gets overlooked in terms of women's health and especially when it comes to childbearing and fertility um, because of all of those societal assumptions. So really just making sure that we're like, hey, you know, do you have any last questions? Do you have any concerns? The floor is yours. What do you feel like you wanna tell me right now? Really empowering them to use their voice and to share their experience and letting them know there are no wrong answers. And even if you feel like everyone else in the world has told you you're supposed to be happy, and you're not actually feeling happy, that this is a safe space to communicate that and we're the people who are gonna help you and support you.
1: I also think it's important to remember the moms and the families after the baby comes. Um, the world responds with joy in what's a really, um, it can be a really traumatizing time even if everything goes smoothly, even if you have a good support system. Um, and And that goes even for how the birth was breastfeeding or not breastfeeding, sleeping. So even if somebody isn't diagnosed necessarily with postpartum depression, um, there's still a lot going on there. So how do we continue that conversation, not only at the six week checkup, but beyond that into the first couple of years?
4: Yeah, and I think that does what I would say. I I just think women's health in general is a huge opportunity. Women are powerful. Um, They play powerful roles in families. Um, Obviously, the act of giving birth is a powerful experience. The act of mothering a child, an infant, is a powerful uh, act. And uh, it's such an opportunity to do prevention and early intervention um, and to strengthen the fabric of society, frankly, at that juncture, that uh, to me, it behooves our health system to pour more attention and effort into um, not just the mechanics of- of birth in early child rearing, but the, uh, the the process of it and the the content of what that means for the entire family at that point um, it reminds me a little bit of what you were talking about, Bridget, with the fires going on near near you. And there's a lot of talk now about how you know if we just put more money into managing the forest a little bit better and obviously managing climate change. we we could deal with this more efficiently than just putting out fires all the time, right? And that to me is what women's health reminds me of. It's like such an opportunity to really um, strengthen this powerful experience and strengthen women through this powerful experience at this powerful time. Um, So I think from a health policy standpoint, if I were to put money into uh, a part of care, this would be probably number one on the list.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the indicators of a nation's health is what are the policies and how, how does a nation treat women's issues, children's issues, and issues of poverty, right? So like the number one investment for economic progress is investment in women and women's health and education because they are far more responsible, uh, probably can handle a lot more and make better decisions in that because they think about the family and they think about from a nurturing point of view and have a lot more power while doing it, and um, so in third world countries and other places where a lot of development work goes on, there's always this question of what are we doing to uplift women's health and their education and their investment?
0: on that inspiring note, I think that we can kind of close our conversation. We would love to hear from our listeners what you think. Um, You can email the listserv to continue the conversation among, you know, our organization members if you're on there. Um, But we would just love to hear your thoughts and the good work that you're doing to support women and families and around perinatal health.
4: Uh, Grace, sorry, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm just pulling up the number that people have been calling. Yes, please. A message. So it's 984 206 1636, extension 1636. That's 984 206 1636, extension 1636.
0: Awesome. I'm also going to put that phone number in our show notes. So we'd love for you to give us a call, leave us a voicemail, and maybe we'll play it in our show too. Um, so we're going to go to a special segment. Deepu has done an interview for us about some people who are on the ground doing this work really focused in women's health. Uh, so let's do that now.
3: Uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, I want to welcome you to the special segment of uh, this episode. We are fortunate to speak to two of my colleagues who work with me at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Uh, School of Medicines. They are both uh, part of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology here. I have with me uh, Dr. Elisa Serapio. She is the Assistant Program Director and an Assistant Professor of OBGYN. She completed her residency at UCSF and also then completed a Fellowship in Family Planning uh, at UCSF and the Leadership Training Academy with Physicians for Reproductive Health. She has a uh, passion and a focus on research and program development with interest in care of patients facing complex and complicated pregnancies, quality improvements, and interventions to lessen health disparities. And Dr. Sanap, welcome to the interview. Collaborative Family Healthcare Association would be the best home for you in the future as you like explore your professional homes and things that you wanna get involved in. The other person on the podcast is actually a good podcast listener. She actually listens to most of our episodes. Her name is Christy (laughs) Ball and she is an LPC and has been an integral part of our primary care behavioral health integration efforts at UTRGV for the past several years. And she has a unique experience, which we'll hear from her in a few minutes, because she started off as a BHC in a family medicine clinic. And then when we had the opportunity to advance our integration to OBGYN, we trusted her and she has done a fantastic job in taking that forward. So we'll hear from both um, uh, both perspectives. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So Dr. Sarapio, let me start with you. So uh, just to get your perspective sort of to set us uh, thinking about OBGYN and integrated care. Tell me um, or talk to us a little bit about the importance that you've noticed in having an immediately accessible behavioral health consultant, um, an integrated part of your team. What does that do for you as a provider? And what kind of benefits have you noticed it presents for the patient?
6: So there are so many benefits to having Christy in our clinic and having this model of care for prenatal care. Um, prenatal care is kind of a unique time in a patient's life because maybe for the first time she has health insurance, Uh, for the first time she might be highly motivated uh, to take care of herself and if not for herself, then for um, her her building her family. Um, And so it is a really special time for patients to be able to set aside time, be able to to have extra motivation and the support and access to health care. Um, to work on really important issues throughout the lifespan, but also improve outcomes for their pregnancy. So patients come into prenatal care very routinely, um, and it's great when they have continuity and um, access to somebody who can help guide their journey.
3: Okay, so it's like you have a captive audience for about nine months and they have to meet these uh, requirements in between. In thinking about prenatal care as being the special motivated time when patients are likely to have a more stronger focus on their habits and other things, what are some of the routine things that uh, you see behavioral health consultants being routinely involved in that are not often thought about but has a lot, lot of benefits in?
6: So one of the biggest things that we start talking to our patients about from the first prenatal visit is the gestational weight gain goals. And when a woman gains more during her pregnancy than is recommended, then she can have really significant outcomes, including needing a C-section when she otherwise wouldn't have needed a major abdominal surgery for her delivery or having the baby, have the shoulders get stuck and, and really big, big deal things that um, improvements in weight gain during pregnancy Can help ameliorate those things and so from the very beginning of pregnancy we try to set goals with our patients but we have a limited amount of time as physicians and so being able to uh, have some extra help uh, with that goal setting is really key for that particular goal.
3: Yeah so like weight gain is like a critical marker almost right Uh, because it can Mm -hmm. have a lot of implications Mm -hmm. for delivery and post-delivery health for the mother and the baby. So that's one area in terms of thinking about, um, psychosocial behavioral aspects of care. What are some of the things that you typically, uh, see like an easy entry point for like a behavioral health consultant?
6: Yeah. So the emotional impact of being pregnant and, uh, having, a, a, a first baby, having, you know, building in, uh, your family is really, uh, Takes a emotional and mental impact on the patient, and so there are so many ways that um, patients' pre-existing mental health conditions can worsen during pregnancy, and and even if somebody had no pre-existing mental health conditions, that the anxiety of, especially now during the pandemic of, you know, increased interaction in the healthcare system, which increases their risk of exposure to coronavirus, the possibility that they might be positive for coronavirus at the time mm-hmm. of birth, and all of the impacts that that has. Um, there, there is a ton of anxiety around, um, around pregnancy and wanting the best for one's own health and the health of one's child. Um, and so, you know, that anxiety piece is, 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 is huge.
3: Okay. And so pre-existing mental health conditions can worsen during this time. And so getting appropriate help to address those would be very helpful, I want to bring Christy in because, Christy, you've been part of the practice now for two years now? Yes. Right. Okay. And so before we sort of get your perspectives on the couple of things Dr. has sort of answered, talk to me a little bit about your transition from being a family medicine-focused EHC and the transition to an OBGYN clinic. Uh, what was new for you? And over the last two years, what are like the big um, learning curves that you've had in working okay. with this population?
7: Sure. Um, so the transition um, definitely, I mean, had um, had its um, rough start, right? Uh, at the beginning, the terminology for sure was like the biggest, uh, what is going on? So Dr. Shrapia, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, OBGYN has a reputation uh, for having more acronyms than yes. other specialties. Is that true? It is. Okay. So uh, for sure, that was one uh, big one. So once right away, I started uh, sorting through and understanding what the G's and P's were and how the obstetric history was presented. Um, the, one of the big other differences between family and OBGYN is that there's a lot of procedures. It's a surgical um, surgical specialty. So um, that changes the nature of the interaction and the, and the clinic flow. Uh, okay. So adapting to that for sure um, was um, something that had to happen. Um, and besides that, um, the specific issues to a woman, the reproductive health um, of a woman through the lifespan and the impact it has on her wellness, um, that was like the first thing that stood up, stood out um, from unplanned pregnancies Um, leading to complex pregnancy choices, to infertility, to teen and perimenopausal pregnancy, um, women that um, were having many, many children um, and, you know, struggling with the care leading into next caregiver, caregiver stress and fatigue. All of these issues, for me, stood out more than um, when I was in family seeing women. All of a sudden, these things were just coming up because that's why they were sure. there. They were there for um, their reproductive health. Um, yeah, caregiver stress and fatigue, huge. Um, women um, disproportionately share the caregiver burden um, mm-hmm. for children um, still in, in, you know, in modern day society.
3: In 2020. Absolutely.
7: Yeah. Um, intimate partner violence. That's right. another one that came up a lot more than in family, um, maybe because the population is exclusively women, but um, it's also because we screen for it. It's one right. of the, you asked, what are some of the social factors that um, we screen for? Um, intimate partner violence is one, and that's um, as per ACOG's guidance. We have to ask. Um, and of course, um, perinatal anxiety and mood disorders also. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. the changes that happen to a woman's mood during and after pregnancy. Um, all of those um, were unique topics that I had to delve into and, and look for a specialized training and, and um, you know, bring up my competencies to be able to be effective in clinic.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. So there are un- unplanned pregnancies, infertility, teen pregnancy, caregiver burden, So there's a lot of stress-based, anxiety-driven processes that can happen during this whole period of journey to motherhood and after motherhood and all of that. So beyond motherhood, uh, when you just generally begin to think about women's health in the long run, um, what are some of the common issues where behavioral health, psychosocial issues uh, can become active? So, uh, So this is menopause and other things, right? So I'm not thinking about all the different aspects. What are some of the things, Dr. Sarapi, that you would think would be helpful to have a behavioral health consultant or a behavioral input to uh, women's health issues in general beyond pregnancy? And Christy, you can also then join in and think about and talk about the things that you've seen.
6: Well, Christy and I could probably tag team all the patients that she's recently <laughs> been referred to um, that uh, that are not in the prenatal context, but have huge needs. You know, when women's hormones change, it really affects their mental health. So the perimenopausal transition is known for creating a lot of mental health concerns and at feelings of agitation and irritability um, and um, around depression. that and depression. And there's also um, issues around sexual pleasure and having a satisfying sexual life in the perimenopausal time. That mm-hmm. having somebody to talk to and, and make goals around is is really helpful. Those are just two examples that I feel like yes. in the last couple months that we've talked about, Christy.
7: Mm-hmm. And insomnia and um, the perimenopausal period also. And of course, it impacts um, the mood. Um,
3: right. And I'm assuming that There tends to be maybe a sense of shame, inadequacy or similar themes around issues of sex and sexual pleasure after menopause or during menopause or in that uh, process for women to talk about. Is that typically the case and does having an integrated care environment make it easier to sort of like open up those spaces to talk about it in, um, in, in specific ways than in general conversation?
6: Absolutely. I think that what we never want a patient to feel is that we are ignoring a concern. And if I had to refer a patient to an unknown source that they have to wait for an appointment for and, you know, you know I don't really know who I'm referring to, that to some extent makes it, might make the patient feel like I'm just, you know shifting mm-hmm. um, the responsibility elsewhere. Um, right. Whereas when I'm able to say, I would love for you today to talk to my colleague who really knows how to talk to women about this issue. Um, It is such a helpful way for the patient to feel really fully cared about um, and have the extra time on that day when she is there for that problem um, to get that addressed.
3: Okay, Christy, any thoughts on that? Like uh, thinking about specifically issues surrounding um, the, the issue that we just talked about potentially around shame and guilt and not wanting to openly talk about sexuality, sexual pleasure, et cetera?
7: Well, um, I think that um, for me, it's different because we talk about all the uncomfortable things, right? That's what we do. So um, when you walk in, if you um, uh, just call it and say, I know that this is uncomfortable, maybe for some people, how do you feel about talking, asking for permission? The doctor wants us to talk about this they have a medical plan for you, but are you comfortable talking about this? I think that we can come up with a plan to help you reach your goals and gaining that trust, Mm -hmm. calling that they might be uncomfortable, I think puts them immediately at ease. I mean, it's not something we talk about a lot all the time, you know, in normal polite society, you don't usually talk about sex, right? But then in what we do, we also don't talk about a lot of other things like suicide, right? (laughs) And and we just do it. We do it. We have... um, the training and the um, professional capacity to speak uh, about to speak these right um, in a way that um, you know allows people to be open and comfortable
3: okay it's part the, of our job yeah and mm-hmm. I think it goes a long way to what uh, you were saying earlier to have the patient not be transferred out mm-hmm. and to sort of say this can be addressed immediately with somebody that I know that I trust just down the hall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that often uh, comes up in uh, pregnancy-related concerns is grief counseling and pregnancy loss. Um, Chrissy, can you speak to a little bit about, um, was that new for you in a OBGYN uh, environment versus family medicine? And um, what are some of the things that you've seen and uh, that you do typically for that?
7: Well, um, yes, definitely it's more frequently occurring in an OBGYN setting. So um, right away, I noticed that I was having more frequent consults uh, relating to pregnancy loss. And um, I think the first most important thing to understand when you see a patient um, for pregnancy loss is that um, it's a complex response that they will have. It's unique. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, They might feel relief. They might feel guilt. Um, their grief process will be unique to them. Uh, it will not be like their partners. Um, and understanding that, um, giving them a chance to talk to you and let you know, and, and let them guide where it is that the consult needs to go is, um, uh, always the first thing that I do. Um, because it is so different. I mean, one person may be just, you know, um, accepting and, and already in the process of, of, you know, compartmentalizing and moving on. And uh, it, it, it uh, maybe is not as big of a deal as, you know, it might be for someone else. Or uh, maybe the provider, the resident or the doctor might think, oh, this patient really had a very traumatic situation. I think she's gonna be really needing to talk. And, and, you know, then I talk to the patient and she seems okay. And in that case, I just say, we are here for you. Um, you know, come back um, when you, if if it is that you need uh, to talk because at this time, you know, she's wanting to not um, process maybe. Or she's, she's processed it on her own way and she's, yeah. okay. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So it's, it's, it's like finding the unique resiliency in each grief journey and sort of helping patients be okay with that. So that's, that's one way. of the things. Now, so, in yeah. thinking about additional areas where Uh, the behavioral health consultant can integrate further into different issues. I know you both have thoughts about this and talked about this. Uh, So what would be, what are the gaps that we are potentially missing in bringing in BHCs to be more an integral part of different things that could either um, sort of ease your day or enhance access to patient care, et cetera? Dr. Serapio? Sure, so I think that
6: Speaking about pregnancy loss in particular, um, it is one area that uh, Christy and I have have worked on, on figuring out ways to improve care around, around these situations that have so many uh, complex components, patients' religion coming into play, yeah. um, patients' family members needing some additional um, debriefing and description in a way that um, uh, that extra time, an additional console, its really wonderful to have a partner in in that process. Um, and then, Christy, if you want to talk about the other idea, which I think is great as well.
7: Um, well, um, also to talk about the complex uh, pregnancy loss, um, we have worked together. And again, like, you, like just like you said, it's great to have a partner um, leaning on each other. Um, right has really made it. um, I've learned so much from Dr. Serapio. She's taught me um, resources, um, um, just appropriate ways to approach um, uh, different from the medical perspective, different uh, stages of loss. And um, Um. it's been so helpful to have that collaboration. Um, Whereas I'm thinking if I were in a specialty mental health setting, you know, with someone coming in with a pregnancy loss, I wouldn't be able to get the background of, or the um, details of you know what is really happening at this stage or that stage. And it's really helped um, um, me as a clinician to have that background and, and that access to her. Um, another area where uh, we could um, flesh out in our particular program, um, the behavioral health consultants involvement is um, contraceptive counseling. Um, right now, the residents um, do it almost ex- exclusively, and there are times when, um, you know, if a patient is uh, not sure, undecided, the answer is, okay, maybe, but, you know, no action is taken right now, and we know that if um, there, we don't have an active contraception plan, then it's, you know, very likely that the patient could have an unplanned pregnancy, um, right. which we know can be very distressing for, for women, so... Um, becoming involved in, in, um, carefully in a motivational interviewing capacity, uh, making sure that we're not um, coercing the patient to make a decision that they're not wanting to make, mm-hmm. um, but um, talking to them about their goals, their, where it is that they want to be, and making sure that their contraception plan is aligned with that. Okay. So I think that BHC could flesh that out. Right. And
6: sometimes patients just want to talk more about what, um, you know, is it okay? um, if they've heard a lot of myths out in the world and they just want another person, maybe somebody who they feel um, is uh, from their community or somebody who understands kind of all of the complex factors that weigh into a person's decisions about when and, and how to build their family. Um, so that extra time can often help clarify for a patient who does want to start contraception but just doesn't quite feel supported enough by the 10-minute discussion with the doctor um,
3: right.
6: to, take that, to make that decision.
3: Yeah, and I can't imagine um, the different social, cultural, and religious expectations mm-hmm. even around contraception mm-hmm. uh, playing a, a major factor in choosing to start it or not start it or go on it. Um, based on a 10-minute discussion, right? So it may uh, need a little bit more than that. So it sounds like uh, complex pregnancies and the complications that can emerge from that, and then contraception counseling and giving more space so that there could be almost culturally sensitive, patient-centered conversations uh, would be additional areas where the integration can happen better. Thinking about uh, we are in a residency training environment. And Dr. Safia, from your experience, what is the impact of having an integrative model in how residents begin to conceptualize the role of behavioral health or psychosocial issues in in women's health um, versus not having something like this in the clinic?
6: I think that it really highlights the value of this type of care and this type of holistic care of patients. Um, I think that if we didn't have Christy in the clinic, a lot of these issues just wouldn't be touched on or made a problem on their problem list because there wouldn't feel like there was an easy way to address that or a accessible way to address that. So helping the residents to really see all of these issues as integral parts of the patient's well-being is really key. Okay. Um, and that also, you know, our residents um, are able to learn so much from Christy by both Um, kind of hearing from her after she's counseled the patient and consulted with the patient and also going in with her on some consults. Um, We have our uh, first year residents doing that um, so that they can learn that approach is so valuable um, for their ongoing communication development.
3: Yeah, so there's almost a heightened sensitivity to these other issues that may otherwise maybe just not paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And Christy, what's it been like for you to be in a residency environment as well? to also like work with people like Dr. Sanapio to now integrate the BHC components, not only as part of the clinical service, but also into the educational stream of things.
7: So um, that's the latest development and um, it's uh, been just a true uh, pleasure and and, um, just a gift to be given to me because um, I love to talk about behavioral health (laughs) <laughs> so give me a captive audience and i just, I'm down. So it's been great. I haven't had a chance to really circle back with Dr. Serapio, but uh, what a gift you have given me to have um, an intern with me to just go and have the reading and flesh through it. And this is what you can do. And all of um, the the intimate in- uh, exchange that we have, you get to know them um, through this, because they say, Oh, well, this happened with my mom, or this happened with my sister, or this, you know, you get to know uh-huh. them as you're working through the patient cases. So um, it's made my experience um, richer, and my connection with the residents I'm seeing is a little bit uh, deeper with that opportunity. So um, thank uh-huh. you so much for that.
3: That's really neat to hear, right? Um, so one of the things that we uh, we would hope is that more clinics are going to think about and can integrate behavioral health consultants or some form of integrated care into a routine component of their women's health uh, healthcare delivery, right? And so whether it's just focused on perinatal, postpartum kind of issues or it's just women's health in general. Thank you both for being here. Christy, I know CFHA is your home. Dr. Sanafio, we are always looking for uh, other professionals that can enhance the cost for integrated care. Uh, We truly believe that all the words that you talked about of the benefits of the uh, care that you're able to provide in this team based uh, environment is what the organization is about. So at some point, we welcome you to join us and be part of our tribe. Happy to. Thank you
6: for the time to discuss, and thank you so much to Christy and Dr. George. What a gift to
0: our learners
6: and our patients to work with you both. All
3: right, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Dr. George. Thank you so much, and uh, I know that we have gone long today, so thank you for staying with us, and your reward is our closing thought that we always have, Um, and today it will be led by Christine.
1: Thank you. This is a beautiful poem by Rupi Kaur. Apparently it is ungraceful of me to mention my period in public because the actual biology of my body is too real. It is okay to sell what's between a woman's legs more than it is okay to mention its inner workings. The recreational use of this body is seen as beautiful while its nature is seen as ugly.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next month.
1: Bye everybody. Thanks for listening.